Welcome to episode 27 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Our level of how anxious we are about the world, our level of how open we are to change, how much we like excitement challenge, they're all dialed up a certain amount and they're dialed up or down according to our genetics and our life experience. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Professor Steve Allen. Steve is an honorary professor of psychiatry and the director of the Psychosocial Oncology Program at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, Australia. So basically, Steve and his team design the programs and offer support to cancer patients and their families. And this, together with Steve's long and successful career in psychiatry, has given him some pretty powerful perspectives, not only on mental health, but also on life and finding and focusing on what's important. Steve is the co-author of Mental, Everything You Never Knew You Needed to Know About Mental Health. I've read it and I'd absolutely recommend it as a great book. It offers a strong and comprehensive overview of mental health and it offers a high-level overview of the DSM, so the Manual of Mental Health. What can go wrong, the treatments, in a really straightforward way. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory based in Australia, and we have now been live for about three weeks and have welcomed over 100 practitioners so far. TalkLink lists mental health practitioners like psychologists, counsellors, and psychotherapists, and users can search for a mental health practitioner for free by applying filters for things that are important to them, like a particular focus area or experience in a specific treatment type. Users can even see a short video of the therapist to decide whether this is someone that they would like to connect with. Find your mental health professional today at talklink.com.au. Okay, let's dive in. Hey, Professor Steve, thanks so much for joining the show. It's really great having you, and I'm very excited to have this conversation. Thank you, Ruan. I'm very happy to be here. I um, read your book this week, uh, Mental, the one you wrote with uh, Catherine Devaney. And, I mean, Steve, you're a straight shooter. I was really engaged by the way you just approached the whole conversation around mental health and I guess when you start the book, you did something I didn't really expect. You shared your own personal story with mental health. And I thought that was really just, it was amazing hearing that from someone with your amount of experience. I mean, what was that like for you writing a book and starting it with your own story? Well, thank you for um, your comments about that. Yeah, that was a really tricky decision, actually, because, you know, traditionally people don't talk about their mental health in public. Now, even if you went back 10 years, it was as rare as hen's teeth. Um, and about 10 or maybe 10, 20 years ago, Beyond Blue in particular and a number of other organisations like that around the world started trying to get prominent people to talk about it. The whole point of Beyond Blue, the whole point initially was to destigmatize mental illness. It was essentially an advertising campaign for depression set up by someone who had a background in advertising, Jeff Kennett. And that's what it was set up as. And initially they got some celebrities and then some prominent sports people but, you know, it still struck me that doctors just never talk about it. Healthcare workers don't because mental health is stigmatised just as much in clinical worlds as it is in non-clinical worlds. Doctors can be very stigmatising. And, you know, and I thought long and hard about it. And to be completely fair, it was mainly Catherine Devaney. So I was working with Catherine, who had become a mate of mine. I'd met her because I went to one of her writing classes. She's a, for those who don't know Catherine, look her up. She's just, she's gold. She's just an amazing person. She's a comedian, public speaker, advocate for all sorts of issues. And she runs writing classes um, online and in person. And I'd gone to one of her writing classes because I wanted to flick from being a science writer. My previous book was like a mental health textbook for med students. I wanted to flick to being a general public writer. So I went to her course and I just thought she was amazing. Then we became friends. And then she said she'd help me get you know, this book, Mental Kick, started. And I just loved her input so much that I asked her would she co-write it with me. And uh, it was funny because it was easily one of the best decisions I've ever made. It wasn't really mine. I was actually talking to another prominent professor of psychiatry and I was saying, I've had this dream to write a book about mental health for the general public for so long. But, you know, I just don't know. You know, I don't know if people will be interested. There's no books like that out there. You know, if you look at mental health books, there are always one particular issue, like my struggle with depression, my struggle with um, anorexia, that sort of stuff. And it's very personal. The clinical books are really dry, boring, hard to read. And um, my psychiatry mate, who I was telling this story to, the first thing he said was, 
Well, that's because no one wants to listen to a bloody psychiatrist lecturing about what people should know. He said, if anything, you need to write it with a consumer. You need to find a consumer, someone who's experienced mental illness, and you know they need to be the co-writer because you need both sides of the coin. And I walked out of his office because I was having a coffee with him in his office. He, I used to work with him. And uh, I was waiting for the lift and I thought, bloody hell, Catherine Devaney's had mental illness. And I, li I literally rang her from the lift and said, Dev, do you want to co-write the book with me? And she said, absolutely love to, bang. And then when we started going, one of the first things she said to me, she said, Steve, if you're going to be honest, you have to tell your own story. And I, and I squirmed. I just, oh, oh, I'm just going to feel so uncomfortable. You know, I'm a very private person. I don't tend to, I don't tell, I've had tennis elbow for nine months. I don't tell anyone. Um, I'm just not the sort of person who shares those experiences, but I 100% recognised that she was 100% right. And so anyway, I wrote, I, I sat down and wrote a draft of my experience with depression and uh, ran it past her and she helped me frame the story and stuff like that. Because the other thing Catherine was amazing for is because she's a writer, she turns things into a story. So the way we wrote that book was I would sit down and write a chapter on a particular disorder with all the science and then We'd spend the better, normally a day, sometimes more together, going over it sentence by sentence, word by word. And she'd be, oh, Steve, you've already used that word. Put this word in. Oh, there's no story here. Oh, this bit's really interesting, Steve. Why is it at the end of the chapter? Put it at the start. Oh, that background science stuff. Look, I see it's important, but let's put that at the end so that if people don't want to read it, they don't have to. And she did all of that stuff to make it into a book that is a cross between, you know, it's probably 70% knowledge, 30% a story and she did all of that sort of stuff and and so she was the one who talked me into it and once I did it it was um you know I think anyone out there who's ever had an experience of mental illness will know when you first do it you get a range of reactions from some people acting like you're being attention seeking you know a few people sort of gave me this look of ah uh, you know they didn't say it but you could see a mile off that they're implying they'd use terms like media whore you know just saying that you know, you're just looking for attention and that sort of stuff. Others were sort of like shocked and I'm a close friend of yours and I didn't know, how come I didn't know, you know, am I, uh, is our friendship not what I thought it was? But nearly everyone, once they got over their initial shock was 100% supportive of it. And uh, of course it just became easier and easier telling the story and, you know, cause often would be in media and people would ask me and, and, and I feel really comfortable with it now. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's it was an interesting thing going public on something like that. Great. Well, since you're comfortable with it now, for those who haven't read the book, I'd encourage them all to go get a copy and read it because I think it's an amazing read. But could you share with our listeners what was your story? So essentially, you know, mine was probably um, I had depression essentially, and uh, I'd um, been divorced a couple of years previously, and then I'd fallen in love again, and so I was going out with this woman, and it was going really well. We'd gone out for a I don't know how long, 18 months, and we broke up. And the breakup, breakup had been gone over quite a bit of time and it was challenging because it was essentially we wanted different things. You know, I didn't really, there was a whole, you know, there was different things we wanted in our life. That was the trigger. And anyway, initially when we broke up, you know, it was probably what I just call normal grief. You know, I was just feeling sad and preoccupied and couldn't get it out of my head and feeling tearful and sometimes crying. And it just went on and on. And after about, I can't remember the time now because it was years ago now, but um, probably after about a couple of months, I started thinking, okay, this is a bit weird. You know, I'm still feeling really down every day. I was often crying on the way to work. The only time I felt good was when I was busy. And I'm a bit of an ADHD style person anyway. I'm always doing 10 things at once and I, I like to keep busy and all that sort of stuff. And that was the only time I felt good. Couldn't tell that from your level of energy, by the way. <laughs> and then but then I'd get home and I'd just feel really bad and also my mind was like a broken record you know I just couldn't yeah. get thoughts of the relationship out of my head and so and then I went into a phase of thinking okay this is more than grief um I think I'm bordering on depression I wonder whether I should see someone um you know I wasn't sleeping well I was still eating okay um I couldn't concentrate that well I even went so far as saying to one of my my boss at work listen, you know, I'm not 100% lately. Can you just let me know if I'm not performing at the right level? But because, you know, I tend to respond to these things by getting busy, I was sort of doing working twice as hard as normal. 
So he was actually, he was happy with the way I was working. And, uh, but I, I shied away from patients a little bit. So I took on more projects because my job as a, as a psychiatrist and a director of a big service is I do a mix of running the service and actually a bit of clinical work as well. So I tended to shy away from patients because I'd find I cry too easily. You know, if a patient said something sad, I'd be crying more than them. Um, and then anyway, after, so I started keeping a score of my mood on a scale of one to 10 each day, which is the standard thing shrinks get you to do. Um, and so each day I was just keeping a score of my mood. And I decided that if I forget what I decided, but it was about, I think I said after about four weeks, I put it in the chapter, but I haven't read the book for a year and a half. Um, I, I said, if I'm to myself, if I'm not better in about a month or so, I'll get some help. And I wasn't getting any better. So I booked in and saw a therapist and I had to choose between, you know, what I wanted to do, just like anyone, you know, I had to decide whether I'd go to a GP, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And uh, I chose a psychologist and um, I went and saw a psychologist and after about four to six weeks of seeing the psychologist, I could feel myself turning around. In fact, I actually saw a therapist. I, 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 I simplify things when I say a psychologist. I booked into a therapist who I thought was a psychologist, turned out she had a social work background, I think. And, um, but she was a fantastic therapist, did a great job for me. I stayed for about 11 months. And after about three or four months, I clearly was getting better. And after about six months, I, I thought I was um, back to normal pretty much. I still thought I had other work that I should work on, you know, like how I function in relationships and stuff like that. But you know what, I, I, I should have, I probably should have stayed an extra six or 12 months, but I, by that stage, my sort of, um, you know, I was onto other things and I didn't, I thought to myself, I'll take a break and I'll come back and I haven't actually gone back to therapy, but I've, you know, been fine ever since and haven't had any depression since. I think I'm more prone to, I think I'm, you know, I don't think I'm, when I say I'm back to normal, I think once you've had something like depression, you don't go back to the previous normal, probably a bit like mm. a pandemic. You know, it's never quite the same after, yeah. after you've gone through it. So I think I'm, I've changed a little bit from the experience, um, but, uh, but not in a bad way, in a good way. Such a powerful story, particularly coming from a professional psychiatrist like yourself. The thing that shocked me in your book was you said how often in your capacity as a psychiatrist, you help colleagues and other mental health professionals find help interstate so that other people won't realize that they're getting help. And it blew my mind because and you make this parallel really well in the book about how uh, these professionals are trying to change the conversation about mental health and trying to remove stigma. But within the space of mental health professionals, there's still so much stigma around that. I mean, why do you think that is? I actually think that clinical communities are some of the worst when it comes to prejudice against mental illness. There's some areas of medicine where clinicians, they probably see the worst of mental illness. Let me give you an example. Say you were a doctor in an emergency department. Your experience of mental illness is lots of overdoses, lots of people coming in with drug and alcohol problems who are abusive and angry and often hit staff members, people who, you know, with psychosis who come in who aren't engaged in treatment and, and they're suspicious of you, they're abusive towards you, they, they've got a psychosis, they're paranoid. They think you're a jailer. They don't think you're a doctor trying to help them. You know, they've got... So if you work in an emergency department, your experience of mental illness is quite negative. You see the, you see the bad side of it. You don't see the good side. You don't see all the people getting better. You don't see the love that people who are emotionally vulnerable and suffering emotional wounds have. And you don't see... You don't see the soft side of them. So, in, and that spreads to other areas of medicine too. And also, as you can imagine, doctors and often nurses, they come from often very privileged backgrounds. You know, in Australia, about 80% come from private schools and stuff like that. And uh, they go through uni and they're often quite, um, what's the word, you know, is it cloistered? What's the word? Well, you know, they haven't seen a lot of the world. You yeah, know, they've been through right? their school. Yeah, they've mm. never really done part-time jobs. They haven't witnessed lots of stuff. Um, and so... When they're studying all these things, they study them from an angle of curiosity rather than humanity as medical students often. And so then when they're launched into the world of being doctors, they're often, they often treat mental illness like it's they're people in the zoo rather than as humans going through ter terrible experiences. They're not at all like that with physical illness. They get it. But um, it's often hard. Now, I'm not blaming them because it's, they're a product of their background. And you'll see what happens with doctors. 
um, and nurses too, but more so doctors, because nurses are much better at understanding the experience of patients. And so they're not, they don't have nearly the same degree of, of stigma that doctors do. But you'll see the doctors, as they get older and they experience more of this, their humanity gets better, their sense of humanity and their sense of empathy gets better. And also as they get older, either they themselves or one of their mates, loved ones, colleagues, gets a mental illness and then they re and normally by the time they're about 50 they've gone a complete circle so you'll find a lot of doctors in their 30s and early 40s uh, oh, I don't want to deal with mental illness it's just too difficult uh, you know uh, yeah it's just tough da, 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 da. and by the time they're in their 50s they're now they're now advocates oh you've got to tap into helping people with their emotional problems that add so much understanding of the world and it's so useful and they benefit from so much and if you can understand the emotional side of their life then their diabetes or their cancer or their heart disease improves so much because you connect so much better with them and so they, they so you'll find they go through this curve now of course I'm 57 years old so for me I would say the doctors who are 20 years behind me are probably better still because now the universities recognize this and they try and teach mental health much better but still not fantastic it's still like mental health in the whole you know four or five year course is still you know by and large an eight-week block with just little bits and pieces in other years you know little threads going through but it's not taught to nearly the same degree as say heart disease not even yeah. close it's one of those things you have to experience to get though or you have to see someone close to you that you care for experience it to really have it emotionally really hit home it's very easy to get the intellectual piece, but for it to have that deep, you know, strike into your soul, it's something you have to just, this life experience maybe. I mean, do you feel like that? Do you feel like your experience with depressions made you a better clinician? Yeah, absolutely agree with you, Ruan. It's, um, you know, it's, the, it's a cliche that's been in so many movies with physical illness too, you know, stories of surgeons who are arrogant and um, fantastic surgeons, know the theory of it so well, beautiful technicians, and then they get cancer themselves and they change as clinicians. You know, there's Harrison Ford's in a famous movie. I forget about that. It's no different with mental health. I agree entirely. Once you experience the illness, you, once you experience anything, you see it from a different perspective. And I reckon you could say that for anything. You know, you can understand what it's, you know, you can read all your life like about, say, life in Argentina and what it's like living there and growing up there. But until you go there and spend a couple of months there and live there, you know, you don't get the full experience. And, and the more the experience you get of that country, the better you understand it. The more experience you get of a mental illness or a physical illness, the more you'll understand what it's like to go through. Mm, so mm. I agree with you entirely. Yeah, it changes your attitudes. One of the chapters in your book that I really, um, that I really just found amazing was your chapter on personality disorders. And if it's okay with you, I do want to dive into that a little bit um, no because, worries. I mean, my background, Professor Steve, is in in maths and science. So my whole training has been to see the world in a really objective way. It's cause effect. It's very naturalistic, and it's it's you know it's a fairly pure world. It's a very pure science. And to imagine a world where someone could be sitting opposite me in a cafe or I could walk past someone on the street and their entire perception of the world is so different to mine. It just it blows my mind. You know, you, you could literally see the same thing, have the same experience with someone else and someone going through one of these personality disorders just sees everything so differently. Um, so I, I wanted to know if you could maybe give our listeners a bit of a, um, a bit of a walk through the world of personality disorders. You clustered them. And one of the things I love about your book is that you speak so directly about things. So um, you talked about the mad, bad, and sad groups of personality disorders. Can, can you maybe just, just a high level, take us through what those are and, and how it all works and what it means? Yeah, well, the first thing to one, you know, when you say someone with a personality disorder could be viewing the whole world differently to you, you could say that, though, about everyone, everyone. You know, even if you had a twin brother, say, an identical twin brother, you could still view the world completely differently, even though you're genetically the same person based on your experiences. He might have been in a car crash. He mightn't like getting in cars anymore. He might have experienced some other trauma that's changed him. He might have um, studied a different course. So we're all like that. And so personality is um, one of the hard... And I and I just I'll flag another thing. I don't even you know, and I sort of hinted at this in the um, chapter, but I didn't want to go too far because it'd annoy too many um, 
doctors is that, you know, I'm not even a fan of personality disorder as a diagnosis. To be honest, I virtually, I can't, I virtually never make the diagnosis. I say you've got personality characteristics, but I, I bristle at the idea that someone's personality could be disordered. Anyway, let me explain. So, you know, a human is essentially, you know, we've got a body and intelligence and a personality. And our personality is all of our beliefs, attitudes, our ideas, the way we view the world, you know, the way we respond to the world. It's all that sort of stuff by and large. And people have argued for years what makes up a personality. And I use the analogy in the book of the primary colours and they make up every colour in the world. And so people have argued about the personality traits. How many are there? And the original models had just three. They were extroversion, introversion, and psychoticism, sort of how suspicious you are about the world. And the modern ones, they've gone as many as 4,000 traits, but the modern ones argue between five and seven characteristics, right? So they're the basic characteristics. And we all vary, like, um, you know, if you think of a, uh, a, an amplifier, you know, you can turn the bass up and down, you can turn the treble up and down, et cetera, et cetera. They're a bit like that. So, you know, we're all on a scale. So we might have a little bit of, you know, um, our level of how anxious we are about the world, our level of how open we are to change, how much we like excitement challenge. We're all, they're all dialed up a certain amount and they're dialed up or down according to our um, genetics and our life experience. And there's a huge, you know, probably about half of your personality comes from your family and the other half comes from your experiences. And they're the experiences that occur pretty much up until about the age of 18. And then they're pretty stable, although people change a little bit after that, but most of the development's done by the time you're an adult. And so that's your personality by and large. Now, the idea of a personality disorder is that one of your traits or traits, some people call them traits, others call them traits. Psychiatrists tend to say trait, psychologists tend to say trait. Anyway, is that a, so, is that a psychiatry lingo? Is that like urban yeah, dictionary? Yeah. I think psychiatrists just think they're a bit fancy and pronounce it in a bit of a French manner, your personality trait. Whereas okay. the psychologists are more down to earth and they say trait. I, I think trait makes more sense, but anyway. Um, so, uh, so a personality disorder is where one of your traits is turned up so high that it causes you problems, that you get into trouble. Like, for example, you're so suspicious of the world, say your suspiciousness around about people. You're so suspicious that you spend your whole life studying conspiracy theories. You sit in your room on a computer. You never go out. You don't mix with people. Other people don't like you because you're forever accusing them of stuff. You know, you're accusing your friends of, um, you know, being part of some plot when they're not. And so they don't want to speak to you. So that personality trait's getting you into trouble. So you might ask for help. Um, or the most classic ones, narcissism. You know, you're so full of yourself, you're so up yourself, you're so arrogant, you can only see the world from your perspective and it gets you into all sorts of trouble. You're forever getting sacked from jobs, you're forever getting into fights because someone stepped in front of you in the queue at McDonald's and, you know, how dare they step in front of you, you know, I'm a special person, I'm the, one of the greatest people in the world and you get into, you know, that sort of business. And so that's when we call it a disorder. If your personality is so extreme in some manner, that it causes your functioning in society to be stuffed up. But, um, you know, but to call it a disorder, just, you know, it's, you can see from my body language, although I'm sure people who are listening can't see my body language, it just makes me feel uncomfortable. You're squirming. Because, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of bullshit because essentially people confuse psychiatric disorders with medical illnesses. And so if you call a personality, a lot of people think of dis personality disorders as illnesses and disorders and illnesses, they're different. So it's not like you've suffering an illness. Like it's not like you've just got COVID. A virus has got into your body. It's causing an abnormal um, um, biological reaction in your body. Um, you're now producing a whole lot of fluid in your lungs. You can't breathe properly. You're coughing. You've got sore joints. You can't taste. You've got a headache. That's an illness. There's a clear pathology there's some something going wrong the body isn't behaving the way it should whereas a personality disorder and in fact most mental illnesses really there's no pathology as such there's no nothing's gone wrong necessarily in a cell they're extremes of normal so it's 100 normal to suffer sadness and we say if you get too much sadness we call it a disorder major depression it's completely normal to be a little bit narcissistic 
to be a little bit suspicious, to be a little bit um, dependent on other people. But if it gets too high, we call it a disorder. But they're random lines in the sand that we draw. You know, we say, you know, we, ha we have these random lines where we say, okay, if, you, if you're, take for example, depression, we say there's nine symptoms. And we say, if you've got five of those nine symptoms more days than most for over two weeks, you've got depression. But if you've only got four, you haven't. Clearly, clearly nonsense. But we, so we draw these imaginary lines in the sand and we use the metaphor of illness in mental health and we borrow from it to use the same terminology as illnesses, you know, diagnosis, treatment, prognosis. And, and where that whole metaphor fails most is in personality disorders. It works pretty well for anxiety, depression, works really well for schizophrenia, works incredibly well for dementia, because it turns out there are pathologies in dementia and it's very much a medical illness. Um, but it doesn't hold up so well in mental health in general. And the area it's worst is personality disorder. So if you see people who get a personality disorder um, diagnosis, they've normally got about 10 diagnoses on the way to the personality disorder diagnosis. Um, if they see five different psychiatrists, they get about six or seven different diagnoses and different personality disorders are more or less reliable. And probably the one that's most reliable now is the one that you've already had a couple of podcasts on, which is borderline personality disorder. And to be fair, the population of scientists and clinicians who work in mental health are gradually coming to the conclusion that borderline personality disorder is probably not actually a personality disorder. And a lot of people now call it complex post-traumatic stress disorder or a version of that. Hmm. So they think of it quite differently. Hmm. I, I've given you a very long answer to a short question. I hope I didn't lose you. In that. No, that was brilliant. So, okay, so the one that really stands out to me is psychopathy, and you talk about that in your book, and that one falls under bad, doesn't it? It's cluster B, it's dramatic yeah, emotional. You, you know, we jokingly call them the, the mad, the bad, and the sad, because the first three are called the odd or eccentric group, and that's paranoid, schizoid, or schizotypal personality, and the second group, cluster B, are called the dramatic, emotional, or erratic group, and that's antisocial, borderline, histrionic, and narcissistic. And then the last one's the anxious or fear, fearful group. That's avoidant, dependent. And of course, these are just names that people have made up. These aren't personality. And these sort of differ from the traits. You know, the genuine personality scientists talk about traits and characteristics. They don't use these terms at all. But DSM, which I know you, most people have heard of these days, it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. All it is is an attempt to make mental health into a dictionary, a classification system. That's all it is, just so that we're all using the same language. And so, so DSM uses these other, these three clusters and these other terms. So, um, which don't have as much scientific validity, but in clinical practice, they make, they're easy to work with. So they mightn't, they mightn't be completely true, but they're easy to work with. Clinicians understand them, the public understands them. We can all agree on the language. We can communicate and know what we're, talking about so they're pretty random lines that you draw on the sand just to to move forward very yeah very random but that's the same for every mental illness if you look at every mental illness definition it always begins there's essentially three parts to it the first part is describing the illness and saying how long it, describing what it is so you know this this set of symptoms the second bit is saying how long you have to have it for it to be a disorder and the third bit is the line in the sand it says the disorder must be severe enough to interfere with your social, occupational or functioning. So that's the line in the sand bit. That's the one where we say, if you can be as depressed as all buggery for the last five years, but if you're still turning up to work, your relationships are fine and everything's going okay, you haven't got depression, clinical depression. Yeah, if you're a high functioning person suffering from one of these extremes, then you could probably pass as not having a mental illness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But of course, don't forget the diagnoses they're just, a, they're, they, they're totally overblown in how important they are. The diagnoses don't mean a lot. The reason, you know, I don't want to bore you with the history of classification, but um, in essence, it doesn't really matter where the line in the sand is. The most important thing is, does the person want help? So let me give you an example. I once had two patients, or I think I wrote about this in the book, who came to see me consecutively. You know, so there were two appointments on the one afternoon and I'll summarise because I saw them each for a couple of months. But the first one came in and when he was young, he'd been involved in a robbery in a bank and he hadn't worked since. 
He stayed at home. He'd been totally, he, he could go down to the local milk bar. He had panic disorder and um, severe agoraphobia. He could empty the mail from the mailbox. He could go to the milk bar once a day, but by and large, he sat at home, watched TV, barely left the house. He came and saw me because he was on the disability pension and the government had sent him one of those standard mean robo-bot style letters saying, um, your pension's up for review. You need a letter from a psychiatrist. And he came along. So he had severe anxiety in my book. Absolutely. You know, 20 years, he was about 50, 20 years, he'd hardly left the house staying at home, life totally damaged by um, his anxiety. The second one came along and he had relatively mild anxiety. He was a high-powered executive. He, um, got he had panic and agoraphobia too. He couldn't go in a lift, but it was no big deal because he worked on the third floor of an office. He got a bit nervous when he was speaking in front of more than about 15 people and he was the state sales manager for a, major for a big product. He often wouldn't sleep well the night before. If he had to go on a plane, he felt nervous and he wouldn't sleep well the night before. And he just got a promotion to national sales manager. The national office was on the 15th floor. So he had to get used to using lifts. Um, there was lots more flying. And he came along to me and he said, okay, doc, you know, I've got this anxiety problem. I need to treat it. He was a real type A personality. I need to treat it. I can't put up with this bullshit. Um, you know, I, my career is too important to me. Um, you know, I want to treat it and I want to treat it quickly. I want the maximum. I'll go for the psychology and the medications. Whatever you say, I must get this treated. He had a mild disorder. The second guy, when I started offering him treatment, he said, I don't want treatment, doctor. So what do you mean? The, you know, the guy with the 20 years hadn't left the house. I don't want treatment. Why not? I'm completely happy with my life. But you haven't left the house in 20 years. Oh, it's no big deal. Though. I live with mum and I live with my... Brother, well, my brother's an alcoholic. I don't really talk to him, but I live with my mum. We get along really well. We watch Oprah every day. Um, I love reading. I've got a beautiful study at home. I don't, re I don't want to re-enter the world. I, I love my quiet life. Are you sure? Let me just give you a try treatment. You might find the world's really fantastic once you go outside the door. And he gave it a little try, but even after a month, he said, nah, it's not for me. I'm fine. I love my life. So the first one had a severe disorder didn't want treatment, didn't consider himself mentally ill. The second one had a really mild disorder, couldn't put up with the mild disorder, getting in the way of his life, wants treatment. So that's what's important. Whether I give him a particular name of a diagnosis is irrelevant. The only reason we really use the names is for communication so that I can explain to you what the name is and you can look it up on the internet and go, aha, yes, other people have got it. And also so that I can write a diagnosis so the relevant insurance company, be it Medicare, the state insurance, or your private insurance company, or whatever, will pay for your treatment. Um, we need diagnoses for research so that if we're studying treatments, we can say, you know, this treatment works in this condition. So if you've got depression, five out of nine symptoms for more days than most for two weeks, this medication 63% of the time will make you 50% better. So we need it for science. And then the other people who love it but totally bastardise it, of course, are the courts because people are always after compensation. So, and that's where it gets particularly dodgy. But um, so actual diagnosis is a little bit of bullshit in mental health. You know, it's incredibly important to us because we need it for those reasons, but it's not like coronavirus. We can't put a swab six centimetres down your nose, twist it five times, put it into a reagent and say, yes, you've got coronavirus. That's why you can't taste you're coughing, you're a bit short of breath, you've got a headache and sore joints. We can't say that. It's subjective. Have you ever seen someone and thought, oh, I wish you hadn't gotten that diagnosis because it's changed something for you in the wrong way? Oh, a million times. Yeah, no, 100%. 100% quite often. You know, I'm mostly, I'd say two-thirds of the time, I think diagnose, the naming something is really useful because it gives a person so much understanding. You know, someone might have been suffering for years, you know, with either depression or anxiety or panic, and they just think that they're a shit person. They just think, I'm just not a good person. I'm not as good as other people. I can't function as well. I can't do this. And once you give them the diagnosis, it's a real light bulb moment. And they go, oh, this is a real phenomena i'm not the only one and they read about it and they go oh and then they can choose then they say oh there's seven or eight treatments oh philosophically i like this treatment or that treatment and then they go down paths and they make change so for them the diagnosis is great but some people jump on the diagnosis and, and the diagnosis can define them and sometimes they there's a fine line between using a diagnosis to help your life and using a diagnosis to justify not doing anything as well and 
and especially in kids, I often see parents jump on diagnoses and then they define their kid according to that diagnosis. And then in a sense, they mold their kid even more into that diagnosis because it becomes a part of the narrative of their life. So, you know, I often think long and hard about when to use diagnostic terms. And when I do use them, I always use them with the caveats that I've just told you. So I tell the patient or I tell the family, let's not forget, this is just a descriptive term. We might totally change our mind in two years time. Let's, you know, so that, so that you get the benefit of diagnosis without defining your life according to the diagnosis. Hmm. It's a double-edged sword. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Double-edged sword. We need the terms, but sometimes they do more harm than good. Have you ever seen or had a, a patient who suffered from um, psychopathy, to, to use that term with all the caveats that you've just ensured around it, but you, you actually thought this is, you know, that person's completely dialed on their, um, with all the characteristic traits to make them, uh, can you say psychopath? Can you say that? Yeah, psychopath or sociopath. People use, there's slightly different definitions for those words, but by and large, they're so similar. I use them interchangeably. So first, let me just say, when you specialise in any area of healthcare, you can subspecialise. So I'm what's called a consultation liaison psychiatrist. It's a stupid name, but it means essentially medical psychiatry. So I specialise in people in hospitals. So I specialise in the mental health aspects of cancer or, you know, early on, I specialised in HIV. For about five years, I did burns. I did spinal injuries. I did transplants. These days, I do cancer. Um, and so I specialise in the mental health of certain situations, medical problems. So I don't get to see a lot of psychopathy because everyone I see, the reason that I'm seeing them is because they've got a Ill medical illness and I'm helping them deal with the psychological components of that illness. So the specialist in psychopathy is the people who see them the most are forensic psychiatrists. They're psychiatrists who specialise in the overlap between mental health and the law. So that's, if you want to see the psychopaths, you know, they often end up in jail. That's where you go. That's where you, you go. So I'm not the right person to ask. But having said that, I've, that same question you just asked has been in my head for 30 years. Um, because, you know, every once in a while in the hospital, I will see people who are called psychopaths. So, for example, you know, probably once a year, I used to be the um, boss of, of the psych service at one of the biggest hospitals in Melbourne, one of the biggest trauma hospitals, the Alfred. And so about once a year, we'd get someone come in who had murdered someone or who had, you know, been caught in a crime, you know, the police had arrested him just after he'd murdered someone or he'd assaulted 50 people and he was a psychopath and well-known. And, I'd, and um, I'd often go and, you know, they'd oft, I'd often be after to do a psychiatric assessment, you know, because they come in and they've been guarded by the um, cops, et cetera, and they need the psychiatrist to go in and suss out how dangerous they are and are they fit to be interviewed and all this sort of bizzo. And I'd always go in with the thought of, I wonder if they're really a psychopath. And so, you know, if they would be prepared to talk to me, because not everyone is, um, I'd ask them, do you mind if I ask you some questions about your past and stuff? And, you know, and, when I, and one of the things that always struck me, whenever I asked them about why they just committed the horrible crime they committed, um, they always had a, what they considered was a totally rational and reasonable excuse. Oh, I've been treated bad my whole life, doctor. I had a shit childhood. I had this, I had that. People have always treated me bad. That woman, um, you know, just looked at me like scum and she deserved to be stabbed. And I'd be horrified, of course, because no one deserves to be stabbed. That's just bullshit. Um, there's no excuse for it. But they didn't see themselves as bad or evil people. And so I always wondered, but of course, the psychopaths defined by more than that. They're defined by the lack of empathy for other people, only seeing themselves from their own perspective. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, they have a disregard for the rights of other people. So strictly speaking, they've got that diagnosis so i guess you know do i believe psychopathy exists and antisocial personality disorder exists oh, absolutely i do um i think you know in its truest form as it's described in the book where it's supposed to be about one percent of the population i think it exists but we only see the ones who get in trouble with crime you know of course there's you know you used the term before high functioning there's a lot of people who their psychopathy doesn't get them into trouble. And in actual fact, they use it as a tool in business and stuff like that to, you know, like they're the ones who can do big business deals and shaft their partner and, you know, sell their customers crap products, even though they know they're crap and they don't go to bed at night, you know, wringing their hands and stressed out because they know that they're not doing good in the world. So, yeah, I believe it exists. But, um, 
yeah, but I don't get to see a lot of it and I'm certainly no expert. And I wouldn't be surprised if a forensic psychiatrist listened to what I had to say about it and say, Steve, swim in your own lane, stick to <laughs> Well, if, if, if there is a forensic psychiatrist listening that has a view on this, I'd love to have a chat to them. Um, so, oh, so some good ones around. We've got some rippers. You said that you work with people who suffer from cancer and you help them with the psychological part of that. Do you have time? Can I ask you some questions about that? Because I've just got, I'd love to know more about that. As long as I don't add my cup of tea and my water, yeah, ask away. Well, okay, so what, what do you see? Why do people suffering from cancer need a psychiatrist and what sorts of things do you talk to them about? The most don't need a psychiatrist. So, um, so just to give you some broad figures. So cancer's, you know, up with heart disease, the equally biggest disease in our community that um, I think yeah, it varies from decade to decade, but roughly cancer and heart disease kill the most people. And about a third of us get cancer in the end. Um, so if you get cancer, uh, you've got pretty much everyone who gets cancer gets distressed. How can you not? Um, it's an incredibly scary illness. You know, if you think about cancer, it begins as one cell somewhere in the body growing abnormally. And then it grows more and more and more. And then it spreads. Um, not always, but sometimes if you're unlucky. And uh, whilst our cancer treatments have improved out of sight in the last 10 years, and we've now got immunotherapy, you know, we used to only have surgery, chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Now we've got immunotherapy as well. So treatments have just improved out of sight and more people survive cancer now than die from it. But nevertheless, it's super scary because it starts differently every time because it can start in any cell in your body. No two people have the same cancer experience. So first up, when you get cancer, you nearly always have gone through between one to three months, sometimes six months, sometimes 12 months of uncertainty with people saying, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I don't think it's anything to worry about until finally cancer um, declares itself and they go, oh shit, that's cancer. Let's get you to the um, see which treatment you need. So you've normally gone through a period of uncertainty and then you're now facing this illness, which has more uncertainty. You know, you've got a 50% chance of depending on the cancer, surviving. And, you know, this treatment has this probability and that. So you've got a million decisions to make in the first six weeks. So whilst you're at your most vulnerable, you've got all these decisions to make. Then you're knocked from a social perspective, you're knocked for six. So you can't work. So you're now worried about your finances. Your family are all super stressed out around you. Everyone you knows worried. You, you're um, anxious about telling people you've got cancer because some overreact. So it's incredibly stressful. Now, of those people who get it, cancer, most handle the stress and the support of their loved ones and their doctors and nurses and social workers and stuff like that, allied health staff at the hospital. But about one in three, their distress is so much that they just feel they're not coping um, with the distress. And so they tend to get a little bit of extra support. And about one in 10 people tend to see a severe enough anxiety or depression or grief or other worries that they need some specialist help. And they tend to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So if you come to my service at Peter Mac, we're called psychosocial oncology. There's four arms to my service. There's the psychiatry team. They tend to deal with the patients with quite bad depression or anyone with a pre-existing psych problem, anyone who's feeling suicidal. They tend to deal with a lot of the inpatients because there's lots of medical issues, like they might be getting chemo and the chemo can cause depression and other things too. So they'll get involved with the medical ones. The psychologists will do the bulk of the therapy. They mainly see the outpatients. So they'll do most of the work around grief and they'll give you lots of supports about how to get your sleep right, how to manage your anxiety, how to learn to relax, how to deal with the stressful relationships. Um, and then there's the social workers. They will um, help you with all the things like finance, housing, work certificates, um, accessing government supports, welfare if you need it, all those sorts of things. They also do a lot of the family work. They help support the families in supporting the person with cancer. So they tend to, they tend to you know, meet with the mums and dads, the husbands and wife and the kids and stuff like that and provide them with support and resources. Uh, music therapists, they're quite specific. They use music as a tool for, um, to relieve your anxiety and worries, but also as a tool to explore your feelings and emotions. So you know, they might help you write a song about what it feels like to have cancer or you know, a song that you want to leave to your kids or a song that you want, you know, that sort of stuff. And then we have a couple of other teams who are also super helpful, but they just sit in another department. Spiritual care, that's a team of about 20 people who they tap into the spirit to people who, um, who want spiritual support. And that can be religious support or any other form of spiritualism. And then, uh, and then we also have a massive wellbeing centre. 
So that's um, a centre that basically deals with things like providing with education, knowledge, support groups, a place in the hospital where, you know, say you've got to wait four hours for your next test or appointment, you know, you might have something in the morning and then you've got to have a treatment in the afternoon. You can go away and be out of the hospital environment and sit in an area that just basically looks like a really nice cafe with a kitchen and different areas and some relaxation rooms some quiet rooms and stuff like that. And so all of that stuff together is providing the spectrum of everything from just your general well-being through to you might have full-on depression or you might have gone on a medication that made you go psychotic. You know, some of the medications make you have hallucinations and delusions. So we've got the whole spectrum covered and we've got all these different arms, psychiatrists, psychologists, music therapists, social workers, spiritual care, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds like we've come a long way in the last 10 years indeed. Oh, yeah, it's good. But, you know, we haven't come nearly far enough. You know, with the evidence about the psychological impact of cancer and other big medical illnesses like spinal injuries, burns, HIV, AIDS and all that has just exploded in the last 20 years. We know that around about 10% of people with a major illness require specialist support, but we actually only have enough services to meet about 3% of them. So about only about one in three people get the adequate support. Um, and uh, we've, we've known that for a long time. And so we've been trying to build services. But of course, as you probably know, if you followed the Victorian Mental Health um, Royal Commission, um, mental health services are just grossly underfunded. They're funded at about the third the rate of medical services. So if you look at a medical service, say for heart disease, and you look at the equivalent mental health service that has equivalent disability. So, you know, the equivalent amount of sickness, if you use all the various scale scientists use, about for every dollar that's spent on the medical illness, about 30 cents is spent on mental health. So anyone out there listening who's tried to get mental health care will know that the standard story is you get the runaround, you get waiting lists, you get told that our service can't treat you because you're not severe enough, or you get told that you're not suitable for our service, or you get told that, oh, you've got a mix of drug and alcohol problems and mental health, so you have to go to... If you're from mental health, you say, you've got to go to drug and alcohol. And if you go to drug and alcohol, they say, you've got to go to mental health. So everyone gets the runaround. They can get the handball. Yeah they get, get, yeah. yeah, they get the handball. And it's because it's not because the services are crap or the services don't care. It's because they've got no money. And so, you know, they can only afford to see about one in three patients who need help. So they have to create all these hurdles um, to getting in because they, they just haven't, you know, they've only got five psychologists. So, you know, when they get... 150 referrals in a month they can only see 80 of them and so 70 of them have to get told to go elsewhere they or they end up having waiting lists that are so long they're meaningless you know like if you've got cancer for example and you've got depression and your cancer treatment's starting and you know for the next eight weeks you're having radiotherapy and chemotherapy it's no good saying oh, i've booked you in for a psychologist for three months time you, you've missed the boat and and that's the reality of life um, working in mental health. You're constantly having to ration. And people talk about the moral distress of working in the field. So the clinicians get really upset because the clinicians see people who are in need and they have to say, no, I can't help you. You know, it'd be the equivalent of being, you know, a doctor working in the, you know, in the emergency department and someone comes in with a broke, you know, five people come in with a broken leg and you say, oh, now you two, your leg's not badly broken. Please hop to another depart to another hospital. And you three, yeah, yours is really bad, broken. It's compound fracture. Come in and we'll treat you. And so the, the clinicians get really fed up and pissed off. And, you know, they just, and they feel undervalued because the government doesn't support them with enough finances. So it is quite tricky. But having said that, it has improved out of sight since I started. So when I started, it was virtually, you know, I, I've been in psychiatry 30 years. When I started, psychiatry was big hospitals in the outer suburbs with no resources whatsoever. Hmm. Now, you know, we're sort of, I think we're halfway there, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, we've got halfway there. Now we've got pretty good quality services in general hospitals that can treat every illness, but they're not quite funded well enough and we have to ration them. And, and interestingly, coronavirus has just totally exposed our weakness as a community when it comes to mental health. And so the governments are seem to be making all the right noises about finally funding it appropriately. So we've all got our fingers crossed that the rhetoric that we're hearing our politicians and our leaders talk actually turns into clinicians on the ground, offering people appointments in a reasonable time with an adequately qualified Good. You know, psychologist. Or well, or I mean, here's to closing that, that extra 50% of the gap. The problem is, though, to make a qualified 
psychiatrist. <laughs> it's what a 10, 12 year journey to make a qualified psychologist. It's six years, 13, 13 yeah, right? Minimum. About that, it's 30, and not many make it in that time. And that's just to become a basic psychiatrist, you know. So, and what there's, there's only about 5,000 psychiatrists in all of Australia, isn't there? Is there that many now? It used to be a bit less than that, but I haven't looked at the figures for about 10 years. And there's about 25,000 psychologists. So, um, and there's all different levels of these things. Yeah. So, a psychiatrist has to do medicine, which is normally six years, because you know, you, you, it's either, yeah, it's about six years. That's about the quickest you can become a doctor out of school. It's mostly a bit longer. Then they have to work for at least two years as a general doctor before they can get into the specialist training program. And all specialist training programs take five years, whether it's surgeon, radiologist, physician, whatever, it takes five years. And so you're looking at at least, you know, six plus two plus five, so it's eight, 13. And then you do other things like I did a master's degree and uh, I also then did a doctorate. So I was at uni till I was 40. I was enrolled in Melbourne University from, with the exception of one year, my intern year, I was enrolled in Melbourne University in some way, shape or form um, from the age of 18 to 40. Your fees must have paid for a lot of nice things there. Yeah. Once you're a doctor though, it's all like an apprenticeship. So you're still working. So I still had a job, but the difference is when you're specialising, just like an apprentice, you go to work all day, you're often working 50, 60 hours a week, and then you come home and on the weekend, you have to do your assignments and study for your next exam and prepare for your next assessment. And, it, you know, by the end of it, you're so bloody worn out and tired of it all. You know, by the end, you don't want to look at another book for the rest of your life. Yeah, I bet. And then if you compound that with working in an environment where you do get frustrated because there's a gap with inadequate resources, you know, it's small wonder, tying it back to the start of the conversation, that people who work in that field, they experience their own stress and their own challenges around work and it expresses as mental health challenges as well. It's small wonder that happens. Doctors have one of the highest rates of burnout and mental illness in the world. Mind you, you know, similar professions who work long hours and have stress have the same. But yeah, that idea that, you know, you do something like this and you're going to be immune to the problems total nonsense. I think our rates of um, burnout, you know, so people feeling frustrated, demoralized, hate their job, want to leave, want to change, something like 30%. Um, and it gets as high as 50%. They're just terrible. And our rates of depression, and of course, as we know too, unfortunately, our rates of people killing themselves are higher than the general public. You know, there's other groups that are also high risk. So I don't want to make out it's worse for us than anyone else. But yeah, but we're in one of those high risk groups because it is, you know, I, I you know, people often ask me, you know, how, you know, because I, I love it, as I was saying at the start, I love, I just love it. And I keep taking on all these different jobs and stuff that the way I, I had a trick to doing it, um, that I started 23 years ago. Now, I, I looked at where I was at. And I noticed that a lot of people had great opportunities who had time on their hands. And I noticed at that stage, so 23 years ago, I was what, 35-ish, I noticed that I'd had some opportunities come my way, like doing fun things, like getting involved in writing books or different projects or different jobs and different opportunities, going on the radio and doing podcasts, not that there were podcasts back then, but you know what I mean. And I realized that the reason I never got the advantage of those was because I was always so busy. I was always working 50 hours a week. And whenever someone asked me, I could never say yes. If someone like Ruan rung me up and said, Steve, can you do a podcast? I'd say, I'm sorry, I'm too flat out. Um, and so I'm, and also I realized I'm not prone to stress. You know, I, I, I like to take on lots of stuff. And, and so I get stressed and I get worn out and I feel my brain just frying some days. And so I decided to go part-time. So I went back then and I gradually instituted going to work three and a half days a week and having two to three months off a year. And now I don't achieve that every year. Like for the last, since I've been in cancer, I've had to work four days a week and I've probably only averaged two months off a year, but that's still pretty good compared to most, but that's how I do it. So I took the attitude, you know, I went to a really good quality independent financial advisor and said, listen, I don't need to be rich. I come from a working class background but I don't want to be poor, but I don't want to be working 50 hours a week till I die. You know, I want to be able to enjoy it as I go. And so, you know, I did things like just sensible things like made sure I didn't buy an expensive house, made sure I didn't have expensive cars, um, made sure I maximised my superannuation every year so that, you know, when I do come time to retire, I'm not broke. And so I did all those things and that gave me the foundation to work part-time from the age of mid-30s 
And that's how I got to write a book. And, you know, I have a radio show on 3RRR and I have one on ABC. And, you know, that's how I get to do all those fun things. And like right now I'm working in Darwin for four weeks, helping out with the quarantine program. That's because, you know, I've got this, you know, flexible work place and, and it takes a long time to get that in place. But if you're careful and plan ahead, you know, like when I'm, I've been in cancer now for four years. So, you know, when they offered me the job, I said, yeah, there's a catch with me though. You don't, you know, I, I like to work three and a half days. And they said, well, it's a full-time job. We'll negotiate four days. And I said, and I like three months off a year. We'll do our best. Let's start with two months. But I've been there four years now. And I reckon, you know, and they're really happy with the way the program's going. And so they're, you know, in the process of, you know, they'll, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to negotiate them down to three and a half or three days a week and, and at three months off a year pretty soon. And, you know, so I forget how I got onto that, but yeah, the gist being that um, it's a bloody long haul. And if you work in the field, you have to do stuff to look after your mental health. And it's the same for teachers, for any people in the health industry, nurses, ambos, paramedics, lawyers, you know, engineers, any of these fields, it's, you've got to watch it. I think we're seeing more of that though. The millennial generation and from that point down, they don't want to tolerate 60 hour weeks anymore. I agree. You know, that baby boomer ideal, it's just, it's not, they don't care for it. I've, I've had conversations with a lot of millennials and they think the ideal is exactly what you've mapped out. So it sounds like you were 20, 30 years ahead. The, of- only, the only thing I would say to them, and I hate to say it because, you know, I know they're just going to say, oh, you know, I don't, can't remember, I don't know if Laura are allowed to swear on this podcast. I'll soften my swearing. They're going to say, stupid old bastard, you know, mansplaining it to us, yada, yada, yada. And I, I agree. But the only thing I would say is, you know, every step of the way, the way I've done it is certainly not by demanding it. I've never once gone in there and said, I want this and I want that. I've gone in there with the solution. So I plan it. I always plan my long holidays. So, you know, I try to have about at least three or four months off every two years in a row at once where I can travel the world or do something fun, you know, interesting career shift for a while, you know, like a secondment somewhere. I always, I always provide the solution. So I plan it a year in advance mostly. And then I front up to my boss and my boss almost laughs at me these days when I walk in because he can see the look on my face when I'm going to say, I say, listen, I've got this fantastic idea that's a win, win, win for everyone. Right. And look, I'll be up front. I want to take off six months next year. But here's why it's a win, 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 win. You know, you'll save my wages during that time. My wages, we're going to use them to employ an acting director and then some acting managers to help in various positions. We're going to move everyone up and give them all the chance to act up in a higher position for six months. It's going to strengthen our department in the long run because all of those people are going to have the experience of being working at a level higher. Now, in terms of the hospital, it's going to give me longevity. You know, I get burnt out easily. I get stressed. Um, you know, this will probably help me last in the hospital an extra couple of years. So you'll get to keep me an extra couple of years if you want me. If you don't want me, I totally understand. There'll be no harm done. We'll shake hands and we'll go our separate ways. But, you know, so the hospital will win. We'll get more people with experience in senior roles. It would be great for the careers of the people in my department. It'll be disruptive. I don't deny that. But my plans to fix the disruption is we're going to employ some extra hours to deal with this, this, and this, and this person's going to do. So I come with the solution and I present it and I do it all nicely. And, you know, that, that's how I do it. I don't go in there and say, I'm exhausted and I need six months off. Can you please work it out and let me know? I know I sound condescending, but one of my problems when I hear other um, people, a lot of people coming behind me, um, want to do this when I just give you an anecdote when I first went part-time um, everyone thought that uh, no male doctors worked part-time 20 years ago and when I first went part-time at the Alfred Hospital there was all these rumors going around town that I either had cancer or HIV because I was working in HIV and everyone and a lot of people working in HIV were you know from the gay community and so everyone assumed that I and you know that I was and also I was married to a surgeon and now everyone thought of surgeons as guys. So everyone, even though my surgeon was a, my surgeon wife was a woman. So everyone assumed that I was gay and I had HIV and that's why I worked part-time. And then there was another rumor that I had cancer and that, you know, there's all that, you know, no one can understand it. Why the hell would this guy want to work part-time? Whereas now it's super popular and, uh, and, and everyone does it. Um, well, everyone try, a lot of people want to do it, at least not everyone does it. Um, but it's all about planning ahead. And that, that's why I get so passionate because I see young people coming. I want a job and I want it to be three days a week. And I always have to remind them, hey, get the foot in the door. 
get the job, prove to them that you're good at your job, and then go to them with a plan. It's a win-win for you and the hospital and your patients. And then, you, then you'll be able to achieve the goals. But you've got to do it slowly. And you sometimes, you know, you've got to get the foot in the door first. This, you know, well, once you've got a good reputation, you know, then you can start demanding things up front. But for the first 10 years, you know, I had to go like everyone else and work hard and prove that I was good at my job before they uh, were prepared to offer me, um, you know, negotiate with me. So anyway, we got very sidetracked there, Ruan. No, not at all. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure that many of our listeners would get quite a few jewels from your life experience there as well. So look, I also want to honor our time commitment. I realize we have gone way over time. So with that, let's wrap it up. Steve, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and good luck with your podcast and all the stuff you're doing in the health sphere. It's uh, really admirable and it's great to see diff- people with different philosophical and um, professional backgrounds entering the field or bringing in new ideas and you know hopefully making making the whole uh, mental health sphere a better place for us all so uh congrats and good luck man nice to speak to you okay well that's it for today we hope you enjoyed this conversation with professor steve allen you can find us at talklink.com.au keep well and catch you next time